try again. Torah Resource presents the Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard! And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb. What up? Shalom, and welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Haig, and with me as always, my friend, my mentor, my teacher, Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? Hey, Caleb. Shalom. How's it going? It's going well. Spring has sprung, and it's time for my wife and I to get out and start walking again. It's, it's time for it's time for Purim. It's time for Purim. Purim's that too. Uh, this, That's right. This Saturday night begins the festival of Purim. Uh, now, most of our listeners would probably just assume that since Purim is this coming uh, Saturday night into Sunday, and then you know all of Sunday, that we'd be talking about Purim today. But we're not. We're not going to talk about Purim today. However, uh, if you don't know what Purim is, there is an article on the blog spot now on our blog, uh, uh, no, rather, and uh, it's by my father. It's just some notes on Purim. You can go check that out if you want to, if you want to learn more about Purim. And Purim is the festival of the, well, it's the Book of Esther, essentially, the celebration of the uh, saving of the Jews by Esther. And by God, ultimately, of course. Uh, so if you uh, want to learn more about that, you can do so by going to our blog. And today is the fast of Esther. I'm sure a lot of people don't know what that is. Rob, do you celebrate the the fast of Esther? No, I don't. You know, I did last year, and uh, I'm trying this year. I'm getting oh, pre- cool. getting pretty hungry. Uh, but you know, it's all, it's just a day fast. So I'm, I'm it's not that I, I don't participate like as a policy or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I understand. I, most of, most of the people that I'm around don't, uh, don't fast on, on the fast of Esther, but, uh, I try to fast at least once a month. So why not on the fast of Esther? Anyway, uh, Hey, we're going to have a very interesting day. This might actually bleed over into next week too. We might have to make this a two-parter because we're going to be talking about some great stuff today. And if you want to weigh in on the conversation, please do so. You can follow me on Twitter at Caleb Hag. There's two G's in Hag. And you can also follow Rob Vanhoff at Rob Vanhoff. There's two F's in Vanhoff. Or you can send us an email. And that's probably the best way to get a hold of us. Our email address is radio at TorahResource.com. Write it down. Write us an email. Tell us what you think. I think that we're going to have some controversy on our show today. You know, I don't really know how many people listen to us. I can't imagine a whole lot. You know, the couple of people that are listening right now, I, I'm guessing, agree with us on One Law Theology. But maybe we, maybe through some advertising, we've pulled some others in that don't agree with, agree with us on One Law Theology. And then also, um, before we get started, I also want to say we're going to have little bit of fun today. I am going to implement a new little segment. It's going to be real short. I'm going to call it the Tech Minute, and we'll do that after the break. We're going to talk about different... Uh, I'm just going to... Each show, I'm going to highlight something that I use in the technological world uh, to further my Bible study or to further my walk with God, and I want to share some of those things with you, so we're going to have the first one of those today after our break. Well, that's going to be cool because I look forward to learning from what kind of things you're using in the technology realm. Well, you know, I got to say the reason that I, I decided to even do this is because I just take for granted, I guess, all the stuff that I have on my on my phone and on my computer and, and the stuff that I use. And I've mentioned a couple of these apps that I just thought everybody had. And people have said, oh, man, that, that's great. I've never even I never even knew that was there. So I thought, OK, well, if if people that are close to me don't know stuff is there, then that means that hopefully people that are listening will gain something from it as well. Okay, so today, One Law Theology. This is going to be a fun one. If you don't know, Rob Van Hoff and I both hold to what is called One Law Theology. And basically, well, do you want to, you want to, uh, I mean, we'll both go over the points of what One Law Theology is. Let's explain to our listeners first what one law theology is, and uh, a little bit just about the general theology. You want to take that one, Rob? Sure. Well, I I would say uh, up front that there there's like insider 
definition, and then there's outsider definition of this term. Absolutely. And just searching on the internet, you might find O1 law or those people who want to erase uh, all distinction between Jew and Gentile. And, and it's defined in like a kind of a sensationalist or even polemic uh, perspectives like wow, I wow, those guys sound bad. Well, you know? and and we'll get to we'll get to what uh, is being said about one law a little bit later in the show, and and we should also uh, say at the beginning of this that a lot of the time one of the big problems, one of the big problems that I see with one law theology is not anything necessarily in the theology itself, but that when people say the word one law theology, most people lump the two-house theology with one-law theology. And I will say from the very outset, Rob and myself are not in the two-house camp. We do not believe in two-house theology. And I think at some point we'll probably have to touch on what two th- uh, the two-house theology is. But for now, let's talk about what, what one-law theology is. So, um, Well, I, I have a, a way that summarizes it very concisely okay. uh, from my view. Go for it. And it, it comes at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, of what, what we know as the capital G, great capital C commission. Okay. And if you read that passage in the Greek, that there's this word all, A-L-L, well, in English, all. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, in Greek, of course, it's not all, but it's the word for all is used four times. Okay distinctly in this passage. And Yeshua says, the first all is all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Mm -hmm. That's the first all. The second all is therefore go and make learners, make disciple learners of all nations. So then the second all is all nations. Teaching them, well, baptizing them, right? He says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Mm -hmm. So that's the third all. And then the last all is, behold, I am with you. It's translated always, but it's all days. So this word all is distinctly repeated four times. And to me, it's, it's a concise summary. All authority is Yeshua's. Uh, discipleship of all nations. Everything, or we translated everything because it's uh, all that I commanded you to observe. And then finally, I am with you all days. So, to me, that's it in a nutshell. Um, we don't have to look to rabbis, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it, 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 to see what the rabbinic tradition teaches. We don't have to look to, uh, to try to interpret Moses apart from Yeshua. Uh, rather, we have a concise message from Yeshua himself mm-hmm. that, that he, holds, he holds all the authority and that there's a, he's setting up a discipleship program. Okay, so that hey, is for all nations. That has to do with the Torah of the Messiah. So, um, yeah, I, I I totally agree with you on that, and I I like the fact that you brought in the Great Commission because I actually had not. That's not the first place that my mind goes. Um, let me try to summarize what I believe. I would say one law theology is uh, from from my standpoint, and uh, basically what I would say is that. A one-law theology teaches that there is one Torah, there is one law for Jew and for Gentile alike, and that the Torah is God's instruction, and anyone who becomes a believer in the Messiah Yeshua, uh, whether you want to call that Christianity, whether you want to call that Judaism, whether you want to call that Messianic Judaism, it doesn't matter. Uh, It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, if you come to a true faith in the Messiah Yeshua, that uh, you should follow his instruction, his teaching, and that teaching is laid out in the first five books of the Bible, i.e. the Torah. Hence, one Torah for all, one law for all, and that's where you get the name One Law Theology. Uh, so that's basically, what, what, do you, what would you say to that uh, understanding? Do you think that that's on point, Rob? Yeah, I think uh, the presentation of one law from the angle that I understand you to be presenting it from uh, comes up in a critical conversation. It comes up in a conversation with that has arisen within uh, messianic well, a movement. Well, certain institutions mm-hmm. of a new movement called capital M Messianic, capital J Judaism, that is, uh, you know, well-funded institutionalization of uh, Jewish scholars that are teaching that uh, some sort of 
Easter, Eastern European rabbinic tradition is uh, to be practiced and accepted as authoritative for, for Jews who believe in Yeshua and that Gentiles have no part in that world uh, short of conversion. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I know of a, a few, a handful of different uh, conversions, you know, that have happened uh, to this, uh, this institution or these institutions that are, by their own words, wanting to uh, be perceived as some sort of legitimate expression of, quote-unquote, Judaism, Judaism yeah. to other Jews, and, and they want uh, Christians... Or believe you know non-Jewish believers in Yeshua to uh, recognize their place. Okay, you know, and it's it- kind of like the map of if I could just real quick talk about the uh, like Herod's Temple. You know, you have a place for Israel, then you have this court of the Gentiles, which is a physically different space mm. that they're and and in a way they're imposing. There's a map of like that that is indeed God's way of mapping out the world, and they're wanting to build kind of that temple in our. Uh, social structure, but doesn't that doesn't the uh, court of the Gentiles disappear in Ezekiel's temple? Well, and in the Mishkan, I mean, in the Book of Hebrews, the author doesn't refer to temple at all. He refers to the Mishkan, and the Mishkan does not have any kind of uh, yeah know, distinction like that. Yeah. Um, so basically, we've given you what we would consider a definition of one law theology, and now I want to talk for a few seconds about what. People who uh, well first first let me say this the the term messianic Judaism or the term messianic Jew is not something that I necessarily like to use uh, and the reason why is because people like Rob and basically mainstream Judaism would say that I'm not Jewish and I'm okay with that uh, because my mother's not Jewish my father is Jewish so a lot of messianics will say oh okay well your father's your father's Jewish you're Jewish well okay uh, you know. What I, I don't really mind what side people put me on because I believe that I, I've attached myself to Israel no matter what through the Messiah Yeshua. But using the word Messianic Judaism or Messianic Jew implies, I think, does imply some kind of ethnic status. Uh, and so to encompass the Gentiles into the body of the Messiah, I think that the word Messianic is just fine. And so uh, I, I do like to use the word Messianic believer or, um, you know, just Messianic as opposed to Messianic Judaism or Messianic Jew. Uh, I just wanted to put that out there just because I think that, you know, in this discussion, we, we need to define our terms. Okay, so we've talked about our definition of Messianic uh, Judaism or Messianic believers and one law, I guess. So now let's talk about our opponents. And Rob, you already touched on this a little bit. So basically, we're setting this all up. Uh, we're we're laying down the foundation so that we can have a freer conversation to talk about these things. Um, so let's talk about what the opposing view, not what they think about us, but what they think of in terms of theology of Gentiles in general. And this is a very broad brush that we're using here because uh, different different factions of so-called Messianic Judaism are going to say different things. So the uh, I think the prevailing view of, Messian- of the Messianic uh, world would be that, and correct me if I'm wrong, Rob, I think that you have a lot more uh, a lot more sway in this than I, I would because I think you've had these conversations with people before. But my understanding is that the uh, Messianic uh, broad stroke is that the Torah is for the Jews and that the Gentiles are not required to keep the Torah and that there is a distinction. And then we get, and after that definition right there, we branch off into a lot of different uh, a lot of different beliefs. Um, for instance, there's the belief that the Gentiles should be in the Christian church. Uh, bilateral ecclesiology that God had that means that God has one way of of living for the Jews and a totally different living for the Gentiles. That it's all one big family, but we're separated into two completely separate groups. And your group is over there; our group is over here. Is that how you see bilateral ecclesiology? Yeah, that's how I understand it. The, uh, and the way that uh, works out, for example, in a, a local. Uh, synagogue that holds that view 
um, is very clear, and will the rabbi will say things like, uh, you know, we wouldn't want it like you know, a, like a guy walking in the girl's bathroom. Mm-hmm. And what he means by that, he's not talking literally about that. He's talking about uh, that there needs to be that Gentiles should not be doing things that Jews that are for Jews. And so, so he, that, that, he uses that as a parable. Okay, and so that an analogy that view is held a lot by uh, people in one of the big messianic. Uh, organizations, the UMJC, uh, and that, uh, in that understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in that understanding, the Messianic Jew has the synagogue, and they kind of want that synagogue to be recognized by Judaism. And then they would say that the Gentile has the church, so the Gentiles stay in the church, the Messianic Jews go to the Messianic synagogue, and they eventually want to become uh, somewhat a part of now, I could be wrong on that. I, I would say that not everyone in the UMJC would say that, but uh, that they want to become part of Judaism. But is that how you see that as well, Rob? Yeah, they want to be recognized. I, I see there's a there's a desire to be perceived, and this is in one of the the leaders. I don't know if he's the president. Uh, Doctor Mark Kinzer mm-hmm. uh, has expressly stated, you know, that the in one of his books it says quite plainly that they want to distance themselves. Uh, from evangelical Christianity and establish Messianic Judaism as a, a uh, branch of Judaism. Mm. And so there's a sheer, you know, a shearing of, you know, there's a, a clear separation and a desire to be perceived then by rabbinic Jews. And we need to talk about Halakha because, uh, you know, I don't know how many of our listeners are familiar, but the, the you know, there is no word Judaism in in the Talmud, for example, or in the mm-hmm. rabbinic literature. Uh, really, the standard word is halakha. It's whether you do the halakha or not. Uh, and what needs to be pointed out here is that uh, the Messianic Jude, uh, Judaism that you see in some of these groups would not be considered halakhically uh, observant by by the you know the strict modern Orthodox Jews. Um, so that's something that we need to keep in mind is that they're, they're actually trying to establish their own voice and trying to submit to some measure of rabbinic tradition Mm. and rabbinic halakha. However, they are not, uh, fully aligned uh, and not recognized by Orthodox Jew, what we just call you know in general Orthodox Judaism, and I, as and, being and legitimate. As a side note, I personally don't think they they're ever, called Christians. Yeah, as as I, per- I mean, that's what that's, uh, and we you can find you know from scholars, the Talmud teachers from Yeshiva University, for example, a modern Orthodox uh, higher education institution. Uh, they'll basically these these are called apostate Jews or Christians, you know. But but if you look at the the way the that uh, Messianic Judaism leaders want to define it. They don't define themselves as Christian. They want to pass on Christian to someone else. Say, no, wait a minute, we're not Christian. So they're kind of they're kind of stuck. Okay, so they're, my, they're worried. They're worried about how they're looking. You know, personally, uh, as a side note, I personally don't think that the Jewish, uh, the non-believing Jewish uh, groups will ever accept any form of Messianic Judaism as a Judaism. Yeah. It's now, now, if if you're pulling your hair out because you are, you know, you attend a UMJC uh, congregation, or you know, you hold to uh, a bilateral ecclesiology, if you're pulling your hair out saying, "No, these guys aren't getting it right. They they are totally misrepresenting," send us an email. Uh, we'll we'll take a look at your email, and uh, yeah, we'll you know, I'll even read emails on on the air if uh, if you if you you know if you want to make a point let us know radio at torahresource.com so that that's I, yeah go can, go for it rob i'd like to to uh, make a point here too just to add another little monkey ranch in our mix here baruch hashem praise adonai praise the lord that there have been over the last 200 years uh, an increase of eastern european uh Jews, meaning so uh, people of Eastern European Jewish descent who have come to Messiah, that, mm-hmm. that have been called by Hashem to 
to see Yeshua for who he is and then had then have reframed then their yeshiva education for example in light of who they're discovering Yeshua to be, in fact, the Messiah. And we have the examples. You know, I, I have two articles up on Torah Resource. Anybody can can read um, that I, I give in an appendix all the Hebrew texts with my translations of, uh, I think uh, one of them has excerpts from four different Messianic Jewish scholars from the, the, the I don't think I have anybody from the 1700s, from the 1800s and 1900s who were writing in Hebrew and they all have different viewpoints, mm. and they come from slightly different generations. But what they all share is an Eastern European background in basically Hebrew uh, yeshiva education. And they're all, they all believe Yeshua is Messiah. Mm-hmm. They've come to this, this wonderful joy that we all share. And then, but what we find in their writings, and this is what I try to show in those articles, they then take their limited understanding— you know, I mean, we're all constrained by what we, books we've read, what we've been mm-hmm. taught. I mean, this yeah. is just the nature of, of, of the limitation of our humanness. But uh, taking their yeshiva education and all that they've learned, and they're trying to re-describe then who Yeshua is in light of what they've learned. Mm. And, and as, as time goes by, you see that, that it changes little by little. But they're all trying to use classic rabbinic sources to tell, to describe Yeshua. Mm. And... Um, the point is, this is a this is a beautiful thing. This is an absolutely beautiful thing, and I, I I say Baruch Hashem, praise Adonai that that he his promise is true that he will continue to pull those who are physical seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to himself, in spite of uh, whatever you know things the world is pushing to the contrary. However, that doesn't mean that these people now all of a sudden know how to articulate. Uh, Messiah in some radically new way. And, mm, and one mm-hmm. of the things I try to show in those articles is how they were constrained by the way the church institutions through which they heard the gospel were understanding the gospel. In other words, they didn't just arrive at some radically new knowledge that nobody ever had before, but yeah. rather they were they, they received the, the seed of the gospel through uh, missionary efforts. One of them was Franz Dalich translating the gospels into a Hebrew, um, and how that publication, how, how leaflets or booklets of the gospel in Hebrew made it into some of these communities and, and bore fruit of believers. Mm-hmm. But, they'll, but then, so those be believers then come to be shaped by the doctrines of those Christian groups that... Uh, that evangelized that were, them. Yeah, that were the, the sources of, of those evangelical efforts. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I try to show is that, you know, it's, it's a beautiful thing when we have uh, Jews who come from traditional, you know, European uh, Ashkenazim backgrounds um, come to faith in Yeshua, and then they're celebrating um, who Yeshua is, and still holding to the trad- some of the, you know, many rabbinic traditions that they grew up with, and mm-hmm. they're reinterpreting them. Now, that's one thing. That's one thing that that I think is beautiful, and as and as many of these what we call Messianic Jews today are from that, I say Baruch Hashem. However, that is not the same. As saying as as that person who embraces that who that Jew you know who comes to the faith in Messiah and reinterprets their tradition, that's not to say that they represent who the Jewish followers of Yeshua were in the first, second, third, and fourth, fourth century, century. Yeah, who had no they were not defined by the rabbis at all. Mm, they were mm-hmm. they were kicked out of the synagogue. Yeah, and they were keeping Torah, but they were not keeping Torah according to rabbinic halakha. As a matter of fact, rabbinic halakha is shown time and time again to exclude them from being part of Israel. Yeah. So what, what I want to point out is just because we have someone like, uh, uh, you know, some of these leaders who come from legitimate, and some of them are second-generation Messianic Jews, you know, and they, they come from, uh, they know, you know, their great-great-grandfather maybe was educated in a yeshiva or something in, in Europe, in the 1800s. Well, that, Baruch Hashem, that doesn't mean you're a, you're a voice, though, for a second or third century uh, Jew who was yeah. uh, following Yeshua and was kicked out of yeah. uh, the tradition by the rabbis. So what I see when we talk about Messianic Judaism today, I see groups of people that are trying to walk by rabbinic halakha uh, and trying to convince the rabbis that they're some. oh, you got to include me, too. you got to include me, too. I'm one of you guys. 
Um, and I think that that's not what the followers of Yeshua were trying to do at all. Yeshua's followers in the first, uh, you know, they weren't worried about trying to please uh, the rabbis. Hmm. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit more about some of these uh, splinter uh, theologies in terms of Jew and Gentile uh, that go on in the mainstream, what we'd call messianic belief system. Okay, so we already talked about this idea of bilateral ecclesiology, that the Christians, or the, I'm sorry, that the Gentiles are over there in the Christian church. The Jews should be in the Messianic synagogue or the Messianic shul over here, and that they want to become, the, the Jews want to, the Messianic Jews want to become part of the larger realm of Judaism's of today. Okay, so then there's the, uh, the question of, well, what about the person who is a Gentile, but really has a calling as the as different sects of Ju- of messianic Judaism quote unquote would say has a calling this Gentile has a calling to uh, keep the Torah. What do we do with them? Are they allowed in the messianic synagogue? And there is uh, a way for them, according to this theology. Uh, this is not one law theology. This is what I would what I would consider mainstream messianic Judaism today. Uh, they would say, yes, there is a way for these Gentiles to be part of the Messianic synagogue. And what is that way? Conversion. That's right. Conversion to, quote unquote, Messianic Judaism. Uh, and how is that done? That's done through usually a ceremony. I know that the, uh, the UMJC has come up with a conversion ceremony. And uh, so, yes, if you really have a calling to be part of the Messianic synagogue, According to these theologies, if you really have a calling and you're a Gentile, you uh, you do some studying, you uh, get a mikvah or what the Christian church would call a baptism, and you have a circumcision or uh, you get pricked, and then you become one of us. And then you can make Aliyah and move to Israel. <laughs> well, you can't, really, because... Oh, why not? Oh, uh, because the UMJC is still not recognized by the uh, larger Jewish, non-believing Jewish uh, belief system. So I would be converting to a group that is seen as okay. Let's step back. Let's let's not even go there yet. And the reason why is because it's just not biblical. That's the biggest problem with the idea of a conversion process. Yes, I agree that there has been this this debate has been going on since. I mean, I think that the Book of Galatians is basically Paul talking out against the idea of conversion, um, but. That doesn't seem to stop these groups from wanting people to convert, quote-unquote convert. It's not biblical, though. We don't find any uh, recommendation for conversion in the Bible, and uh, we don't see anything in the Bible of some kind of ceremony to become a Jew. In fact, in my opinion, uh, the the Torah and the the Tanakh in general, the Old Testament, as the Christian, our Christian brothers and sisters would say, I think speaks against that. And the way it does that is saying that all the nations will come and bow down. And in, uh, is it Zechariah? Uh, we have the nations coming up and celebrating the feasts of, of, of booths. And, um, and they do, they, so they, they're keeping Torah as the nations, not as one big Israel. And this is the other pro- This is the same problem that I have with the two house theology is that the two house theology tries to lump the Jews and Gentiles into being Jewish. Not, there's no distinction between, and, and we're going to get to this in a little bit. I know that, uh, I can, I can tell that there are some people out there who are probably yelling at their, at their, uh, radio right now, their smartphone or whatever saying, no, 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 you don't get it. Uh, because a lot of people say that we're the ones who are breaking down distinction between Jew and Gentile. We're going to talk about that in a little while. But the point is, is that, you know, we have some very prominent people in the quote unquote messianic Jewish realm who have converted through this ceremony of conversion that is set up by the UMJC and, and other groups. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to pick on the UMJC here. Um, but they, you know, these, these people have had these conversion process and now they consider themselves Jewish. I just don't, I don't see that as being biblical. I don't think you can become Jewish any more than I can become Chinese. Uh, I'm not Chinese and I don't believe that a Gentile can become a Jew. Does that diminish a Gentile? Absolutely not. In my opinion, uh, the, the, the Jews are to take the Torah to the nations and bring the nations through the Messiah and through the Torah into the body 
of of Israel as a whole, and the Gentiles will attach themselves to the God of Israel, but there will still be distinctions. Uh, thoughts on that, Rob? No, I, I agree. I I think uh, it, um, we mentioned the scholar uh, Matt Thiessen, or Matthew Thiessen, when we interviewed uh, Dr. Martin Abegg, and he wrote a book uh, called Contesting Conversion. He argues that, yeah, that there, that there was a significant groups of Jewish leaders in the Second Temple period that for whom conversion was not an op. There's no such thing as conversion. You couldn't be a Jew. You, well, there's no way to become one. One of the interesting things to me is that some of the people, and I, I won't name names as of right now, but some of the people in the Messianic uh, belief, you know, the, the larger Messianic body who are preaching a bilateral ecclesiology and or saying that the Gentiles should stay in the church and the Jews should uh, be in a Messianic synagogue are themselves Gentiles who have converted. And they're the ones loudly preaching that the Gentiles should be in the church. Uh, but since they've done this little conversion process, they think that they now have the right to uh, to say that they're fully Jewish and that they're part of this group that should be in the Messianic synagogue, not that part of Gentiles. Right. You know, I don't know. Any of those that I've met do not walk by the Halakha, by rabbinic Halakha. And uh, to my knowledge, I don't know how many of them would actually be able to make Aliyah. I don't think any uh, of them would. You know, I mean, in terms of the the quote unquote converts. Now, there are these stories of people who have have somehow gotten through the normal Judaism conversion process, uh, not from you know, not from believers, but from a Jewish, you know, an Orthodox Jewish sect or whatnot. They've made it through the conversion process without the idea of the Messiah Yeshua coming up. And See, then, then you're misrepresenting yourself, though. Well, I agree with that. But like, it, if let's say you're an Orthodox rabbi, and I'm, I'm trying, yeah, I want to be a Jew, I want to be a Jew, and we never talk about Yeshua, and then all of a sudden, after you convert me, I go around and say, oh, yeah, I believe in Yeshua, I believe in Yeshua. Well, what does that do for for my testimony about Yeshua and the gospel. Well, even then, I mean, beyond that, beyond that, where in the world or where in the Bible, even better question, where in the Bible does it say that if you convert through regular Jewish means that you're a Jew? No, it's a rabbinic, uh, that's Talmud. Yeah, exactly. That's what that is. That's Talmud. Exactly. So I know that there are people out there and, you know, there are people who have put a lot into, you know, a lot of, of uh, joy into their conversion process and, and all that kind of stuff. I'm not trying to tear people down, and, you know, but in terms of theology, when, uh, in my opinion, it's, it's uh, hypocrisy to say, oh, the Gentiles should be over there in the Christian church, but us Jews should be in the Messianic synagogue when you yourself are not Jewish. It doesn't, you know... It just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, I've been told by every every Orthodox Jew that I've ever met that I'm not Jewish because my my father's Jewish, my mother's not. So I'm not Jewish according to the Orthodox. That's fine with me. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, and I don't need to become, quote-unquote, Jewish uh, by ma- man's standards to be accepted by God. And I don't think that, uh, I don't think that others need to either. Okay, well... Uh, we've talked a little bit about messi- uh, about one law and about the larger messianic uh, uh, larger messianic body and what they think of one law theology. Oh, well, we haven't talked about what they think about one law theology. We've talked about uh, what they believe uh, the Je- Jew and Gentile separation should be. When we get back, we're going to talk about what the larger messianic body thinks of one law theology and what their scholars uh, say about this theology. We'll be back right after this. You're listening to The Rob and Caleb Show. That's right. You are listening to The Rob and Caleb Show. Hey, if you're just joining us, I hope you're not because we've been having a lot of fun here. But if you're just joining us, we've been talking about one law theology and what the uh, differences are between that theology and the broader messianic uh, bodies view. (laughs) I don't know how else to say that. Uh, When we first got started, I said we were going to have a new little segment here, and it's going to be our tech minute. And so I'm going to do that before we go on. Are you uh, you okay with that, Rob? Oh, yeah. Looking forward to it. All right, here we go. Tech Minute. 
One of the must-have apps for a smartphone is Uversion. This is one of the most popular Bible apps available for smartphones and can be found by going to the App Store and entering the word Bible in the search. This app will appear with a small icon that says Holy Bible and is simply called Bible by Life Church TV. This app has many different functions, including word searches, verse of the day, reading plans, underline and highlight, and more. One of the greatest features and the reason I like this app is the ability to hear the Bible read. This app offers several different audio versions of the Bible in a variety of versions. You can choose what voice and version you would like to listen to by going to the Bible text then selecting the version in the top right-hand corner. A full list of versions will appear, and anyone that has a speaker on the left-hand side of it is available in audio form. Select the version you want to test, and the text will appear. At the bottom of the screen, you'll find a speaker icon. If you press on this icon, audio controls will pop up. You can listen to any part of the Bible to get a feel for the voice that will be reading it. I personally enjoy the ESV version to listen to. Once you have found the version you want to listen to, go back to the list of versions and click the down arrow on the right side of the Bible version. This will download the entire audio Bible to your phone. Downloading a version to your phone is not necessary and does take up space on your phone. However, if you have the space on your phone, downloading a version will allow you to listen to the version when you're not connected to the internet. You can choose where the reader will begin and then turn the screen off, and the reader will continue reading for 10 chapters. This is a nice feature if you listen to the word as you're falling asleep. There are some limitations to this app. I dislike the fact that there is not the net Bible in their list of versions to read or listen to, and there are no commentaries or other tools for study, so this app is not one I use for study or even for a normal Bible reading app, but it is great to listen to the word on the go while you're at work or when you're falling asleep. This app is totally free and takes 14.6 megabytes, and I highly recommend it. So there you go. That's my tech minute, even though it was longer than a minute. I love it. I, I just wrote down U version 14.6 megabytes. Yeah, if you just put if you just put Bible into your uh, into the search on in the App Store, it's the first one that comes up. It just says Holy Bible, Bible. So yeah, I I uh, I actually you know, and we're gonna I'll next week for the tech minute. I'm gonna talk about a different Bible app. And, uh, you know, I suppose I should probably say I use Accordance as a Bible app uh, quite a bit. And I'll talk about that next week as well. Um, But you have to have Accordance to be able to use the Accordance Bible app. So that's why I have – and you can't listen to it. You can't listen to the Bible in Accordance Bible app. So anyway, okay. So let's get back to One Law Theology. Um, I think that we should talk now about what the wider messianic uh, body believes of one law theology. Like I said at the beginning of the hour, uh, a lot of the time one law theology is just grouped with two house theology. We're not going to talk about two house theology today. Um, I definitely don't think we have the time to do that today. And I think that this whole, uh, show, the theme of this show, one law theology is going to bleed over into next week. We're going to have to talk about it next week because there's just way too much to talk about. But what I want to do is I want to read some of the things that I have found that people are saying about one law theology. And then I want you, Rob, to talk about these, what these people have said about one law theology. So, um, I'm going to name a couple of names here and these are straight from, uh, posts that I've read and found and, uh, websites that these people have, uh, interacted on. So the first one is going to be from a gentleman named James Pyle. He is a uh, believer. I don't know if, uh, James would consider himself a, uh, a messianic or if he would consider himself just a, a Christian, but he is quite a, uh, he, he writes quite a bit on, in the blog sphere online. And he says this about one law theology, one law, this group tends to practice what they call messianic Judaism and believes that the new Testament supports Jewish and non-Jewish believers having no distinction in identity and practice in the ideal sense. It makes no difference if the groups are organized and operated by Jews or Gentiles. Although the vast majority of one law groups are almost always Gentile driven one law groups distinguish themselves from messianic Judaism as the other Judaisms by a general dislike, if not disdain, of anything that isn't written Torah 
although it is impossible for them to practice any religious synagogue-like service without borrowing heavily from the Jewish tradition. One law groups also tend to dislike, if not disdain, the traditional Christian church and claims that Christians are universally anti-Judaic and even apostate. End quote. What do you think about that, Rob? Wow. That sounds like he's just real black and white about things. Um, well, let's go through. Uh, I, I, yeah. I don't think I... I don't know anybody who holds the views that he's calling one law. Um, it's definitely a broad stroke, that's for sure. You know, the idea that uh, the one law theology is primarily headed by Gentiles, okay, uh, once again, I don't think that really matters one way or the other. Uh, I know that the many pe- many groups that I have been with uh, that are that hold to a one law theology are actually headed by Jews. Once again, I don't find this to be relevant. So you know, even if he's right on that, okay, I don't I don't see why that's a problem at all. Um, I, I did detect there's like a hat tipping to rabbinic tradition. Again, you see here something like if it's not written uh, in the Torah, then what he is implied there is that there's an oral tradition. Well, let's let's clear this up real quick. Do I think that there's anything wrong with rabbinic tradition? No, absolutely not. I wear a yarmulke. That's a rabbinic tradition. I have a mezuzah on my door. The way that I hang my mezuzah is a rabbinic tradition. I celebrate an Arab Shabbat meal. Rabbinic tradition, rabbinic tradition, rabbinic tradition. I don't find anything wrong with rabbinic tradition. I think that traditions are good. I think that holding to rabbinic traditions are just fine as long as they don't contradict, you know, scripture and uh, what we what we find in the apostolic scriptures. I don't find anything wrong with that. What I do find a problem with is when people say that their rabbinic tradition is uh, should be kept just like Torah. You know, when you place a rabbinic tradition on par with scripture, that's where the that's where the problem comes in. Uh, you know, the the synagogue that I attend, I'm sure, looks quite different from from your from your uh, congregation, Rob. And I have had the pleasure of traveling all over the United States and even into uh, the Philippines and, and other places like that to see uh, and be with other messianic groups. And every single one of them looks a little bit different. Some of them look a lot more like the Christian church. Some of them look a lot more like the Orthodox synagogue. Uh, I don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with either one of them. Uh, I think, once again, I think tradition is good. So if we pull from a rabbinic tradition, that's totally fine in my mind. But when someone says to me, if you don't hang your, if you hang your mezuzah with the top part leaning out as opposed to the top part leaning in, you're, you're sinning. That's not right. Uh, you know, I think that this comes into play now to be completely frank, I, uh, could sit down at, or an Orthodox Jew could sit down in my house and eat just fine because I keep what would be considered a kosher kitchen. Um, you know, we don't, we don't, uh, mix milk and meat that has nothing to do with a rabbinic tradition to be quite honest with you. Um, but at the same time, uh, I think that that when it comes to Jewish tradition, that is a tradition. It's not found in the in the in the Torah, in my opinion. And so to say that you couldn't eat with someone else because they mix milk and meat is, in my opinion, going against what the uh, you know what the apostolic scripture says that we should fellowship together and we should break bread together. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Rob? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's. Uh, I don't have a problem with any of that. I think what he's getting at when he talks about, uh, well, there was a quote there. Maybe you could read it. Something about um, not written in the Torah. Yeah, he says... uh, It was towards the end. uh, Okay, so he says, One law groups distinguish themselves from Messianic Judaism and the other Judaisms by a general dislike, if not disdain, of anything that isn't written Torah although it is impossible for them to practice any religious synagogue-like service without borrowing heavily from the Jewish tradition. So he said there's a disdain, that was it, the disdain for anything uh, that was not written. Yes. Um, Wow, I I don't know that I've ever met anybody that has that perspective. Um, No, I I know that there's there's groups influenced by Karaites. Well, and and you know what? Karaites are another expression of Torah, that they're seeking Torah observance, uh, independent of Messiah Yeshua. Uh, they reject the rabbinic uh, oral Torah myth, yeah, and you I, know, outright. But 
I would, in any case, that oh, wait, they're I, still, hey, they hey, still have their own traditions. Yeah, well, and that's the point. That's where I was going to go. You know, I would agree with Piles on the idea that, uh, you know, without some form of rabbinic tradition, and, and I put quotes around rabbinic because, you know, even in the Christian church, if you're going to a traditional Christian church, uh, no matter what denomination it is, you could be non-denominational, you could be, uh, you know, a Methodist, you could be Lutheran. Um, you are pulling from tradition to to conduct your service. There's you you can't live a, a life without some form of tradition, uh, whether or not that's rabbinic tradition or church tradition. You know that's neither here nor there. You are pulling from tradition. So the idea of the Karaites saying that we can't hold any tradition, that we should only do what's in the Torah. Uh, you know, I, I I would tend to agree with Piles that, that that doesn't work. You can't do that. But even even if you there's research has been done, the Karaites have their own interpretive tools the, they use and the, traditions. So that's my exact point. It's, that, very, it's a pol, uh, polemic. Yeah, exactly. Um, the idea. But that, uh, here's here's a, just a little footnote. Yeah. Um, if you read, you know, the scholarship on the. Jewish mystical text called the Zohar from the 1300s. It's highly influenced by Catholic, you know, Spanish Christianity. Mm. You know, taken and, and reworked. Um, and so, and that's those are Jewish scholars that make that claim. Yeah. Um, so this idea of borrowing, you know, from uh, it, it's hard to draw a line where one tradition stops. Uh, and another begins, in some cases at least. Well, and uh, at the end of this quote, he says, uh, one law groups also tend to dislike, if not disdain, the traditional Christian church. Uh, and <laughs> and uh, that what is, and see, there's another thing, and it's just like a big, yeah. it's like that Duplo Lego idea. It's like the, the traditional Christian church. Well, that doesn't, I'm not going to, if I look to the, went to the phone book, okay, I want to find this traditional Christian church. I'm not going to find it anywhere. I'm going to find. Well, the Catholic Church would say that they're the traditional, they're the sure. tr- traditional uh, Christian Church, and um, the Orthodox uh, Christians would say they're the traditional yeah, Greek Orthodox. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, he didn't define his terms here. Uh, I, I would say that's absolutely not true. In fact, just last Sunday, my wife and I, uh, we went to a Methodist church, and and uh, and had fellowship with with some of those brothers and sisters. Now, granted, the Methodists are uh, Arminian. Uh, they hold to an Arminian theology, uh, which I reject. I'm a Calvinist, and uh, if you listen to our show ever, then you you already know that. Um, but I went and we sang hymns, and we listened to. It was quite ironic that he that the pastor, uh, just a, a true, you know, he, he truly a believer. He was on fire for God, uh, and but uh, I found it ironic that he preached on Matthew five seventeen and following about the law not being abolished. And so, anyway, the the whole point is is to say that there's a disdain for Christianity. Okay, you know, I, I can see where that where that might be uh, the case in some, uh, with some specific individuals within, messi- within a one-law theology. Um, and I would think maybe... Yeah, I would say that those would be taken from the shallow end of the pool. <laughs> well, and not only that, but I would... I, I, from personal experience, and I'm sure that there that uh, you know this is not across the board, of course. But from personal experience, the people who tend to have uh, a real heavy disdain for uh, Christianity as a whole tend to have come from uh, Orthodox Judaism, um, or they came from uh, a very traditional, uh, you know, like Catholicism or something like that. Uh, but I, you know, I would say no. I, I personally, and I can only speak for myself here. Uh, so, but personally, I don't have a disdain for Christianity. I think that they have gotten off base, you know, and once again, I'm using very broad strokes. Some Christianities have gotten, uh, much more off base than others. Uh, but you know, I still affirm that my non-denominational Christian brothers and sisters, my Lutheran brothers and sisters, you know, they are brothers and sisters in the Lord. And, uh, so, you know. I, I wouldn't say that there's a, a disdain. There is a disdain for some maybe traditions uh, and the and some of the theologies that are going on uh, within the, within different Christianities. Okay, let's move on. I have another comment here, and I'll float this one over to you, Rob, as well. This is from a gentleman named Boaz Michael, who is the founder, and I believe he is the director of still of First Fruits of Zion. Uh, FFOZ, 
And he says, quote, the greater grievance is that of the one law and two house message. I notice instantly that he lumps the two together because it gives the impression of support for Israel and the Jewish people when in reality, the sad reality, it is another attempt to diminish it. The worst kind of friend is the one who really think, thinks, uh, who you really think is your friend and over time turns out to be your enemy. And then later on in the same uh, same written passage that he wrote, he says, supersessionism is really a DNA level problem with one law and two house thinkers. It is going to take some bold leaders to address it and fix it. What are your thoughts on that, Rob? Wow. I just, wow. <laughs> the, the idea of a friend becoming an enemy. Um, yeah, the lump, lumping together of broad concepts, you know, of different theologies as under one. I mean, it's, it, it's rhetorical. It, mm. it uh, functions. Uh, and he, he's speaking as an authority to say it will take a bold uh, leader to fix it as if, you know, uh, here's a beautiful thing about the gospel. The gospel produces one of the fruits, and this is maybe fitting from our, our theme of this month of the fruits of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. One of the fruits is uh, of the Spirit generally, whether we get to it this month or not in our study of Galatians, is perseverance. And that, you know, Yeshua's got things under control, and he's, it's his fruit he wants to bring into the world. And it, I don't know that, that there's ever going to be a time where one person is going to go fix a bunch of other people. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's like power from the outside. That's like, to me, it, it smells a little bit coercive mm. um, and like controlling. Uh, to me, what uh, my sense is, is just that uh, we're partakers of the Ruach HaKodesh, you know, through the, the New Covenant, the Torah is being written on our hearts and this is a, we're in process. And that, our observance of the Torah of Messiah comes from the inside out and it's not coerced from the outside. Mm. And we look, we look to leaders for guidance and wisdom, but ultimately, you know, it's Yeshua who's doing the work in us. Absolutely. Through us. Absolutely. Well, you know, the, the word that really got me, you know, and one of the reasons that I, uh, that I found this quote from uh, Michael, Boaz Michael interesting is because he uses the word supersessionism. Supersessionism, for those who don't know, is the belief that uh, the church has replaced Israel or the church has superseded Israel and that uh, God is done with Israel and uh, Israel's out of the picture. Uh, we, as people who hold to one law theology hear this quite often that we are supersessionists that we believe that we're trying to muddy the lines that we're trying to take out distinction between uh, Jew and Gentile. And so one of the reasons that I wanted to bring this quote up specifically is because Boaz here uses the word supersessionist and or supersessionism and he attaches that to both the two house and the one law theologies. Now I don't know if we have any uh, two-house believers listening to us right now, but I would, if I held to a two-house theology, I would possibly be uh, a little offended by the idea of being called supersessionist as well. However, um, I, I can see why some might think that. Uh, once again, we're not going to get into two-house theology today, but uh, I. So first, we have uh, this quote from Piles. Uh, saying that one law is, you know, possibly anti-Christian, anti-Rabbinic Judaism, and then sa- and then we have this quote from uh, Boaz Michael saying that uh, that you know uh, the one law theology is um, well, first he lumps the one law and the two, uh, the two house together, and then uh, attaches this word supersessionist or supersessionism is the exact word that he uses in this quote. And actually, I will say uh, that quote you're not going to be able to find that on the internet anymore, as the page that that was uh, put on has been deleted. However, uh, be careful what you write on the internet because nothing ever really disappears. I do have a URL that will show you those exact quotes, but let's move on for now. Let's move on to a, uh, someone who I think is seen as a scholar. He has his PhD, uh, and that's David Rudolph. Uh, David Rudolph wrote a book that I, well, 
okay, I'm not going to, I don't want to uh, say too much against the, the actual book that he wrote that I would refer to, but uh, he just came out with a new website and the website is called messianicgentiles.com. And on this website, I actually first saw this website just the other day. Uh, someone else tweeted a, uh, a, a link to this website and I've looked around this website a little bit. Um, yeah, let's see what uh, Dr. Rudolph says about one law theology. Okay. So I'll read this off to you, Rob, a theology, one law, a theology that believes faith in Messiah erases all distinction between Jews and Gentiles. According to one law theology, Jews and Gentile believers in Yeshua are both obligated to the full yoke of the Torah and all of its commandments in an identical manner. Many one-law adherents attempt to observe Torah without reference to traditional Jewish interpretation and practice in an attempt to be more, quote, biblical in Torah observance. The term one-law is based on passages in Torah that speak of one law for the native and the stranger, for example, Exodus twelve forty-nine. Okay, end quote. Rob? Well, that, that first part, it sounds like he's trying to be kind of fair, like, uh, but the erasure, the word erase, yes, uh, to me feels really again like rhetorically. There's there's polemical meaning. It's like it's almost like them's fighting words. You know, it's like yeah. someone is uh, misrepresenting. I think uh, the, what I understand one Torah to be. Uh, but then he talk, he talks about you mentioned the full yoke of the Torah, and then what was after that? Uh, let me see here. Yeah. Uh, full yoke of the Torah and all of its commandments in an identical manner. Many one law adherents attempt to observe Torah without reference to traditional Jewish interpretation and practice in an attempt to be more quote biblical in Torah observance. So the you know some of that I don't have a problem with the full yoke of the Torah. He, I, I would say he's he's probably hinting into. Uh, rabbinic halakha. Mm. In other words, uh, my my understanding of of his just uh, position is that uh, somehow rabbinic halakha ha- is binding on Jews, and so by the full of the yoke of the Torah, he's not talking about scripture Torah. He's talking about um, rabbinic, and that's why that next caveat, the next line there, is mm. out is that these people are. Not they're doing this without reference to rabbinic tradition. In other mm-hmm. words, oh, like they they're going around the gatekeeper. Well, and that kind of goes back to what Pyle said about how you know you can't yeah. you can't have any you know you can't I really. Think the theme here, the theme here is that there, and this goes back to, to Kinzer, you know, this idea of oral Torah uh, that there's an oral Torah, which I believe, and, and as Jacob Neusner wrote, that it, that it's a myth. Mm. But there's this, the myth of the two Torahs, that there's the oral Torah that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai along with the written Torah. And this is the modern Orthodox, this is the the standard Orthodox Jewish position, is that the Halakha, capital H, is oral Torah going all the way back to Moses on Sinai, and it is binding on every Jew. It is the only representation that is legitimate of of Jewish maintenance of covenant identity in community, in the world. In the world, mm. no other way. And what you, but see, I don't know that Rudolph would go that far because it's the rabbinic tradition that has uh, institutionally rejected Yeshua. Mm-hmm. And so he he can't go all the way. So he's trying to find a middle ground. And I heard the same thing with uh, the first quote, and maybe a little bit with the second quote is this idea that Jewish identity has to do directly with rabbinic tradition that has kept the identity forever, you know, since Mount Sinai up to today. And that that is the, now the, the standard that everything gets judged by. Therefore, oh, if you're, if you're going to keep a commandment of the Torah and you're going to go around, you're going to bypass the rabbis, oh my goodness, that's supersessionist. Mm. That's, uh, uh, well, that's, you know, that's not legitimate at all. You can't do that. You have to, you have to go through the rabbis. Mm. Well, and of course, uh, David Rudolph wants to be called a rabbi. He's, yeah. he's he's been ordained as a rabbi, and, and that's a whole other issue. Which I think Yeshua said, "Don't don't be called rabbi." You know, and I I know there's maybe listeners out there that are um, maybe they have a messianic rabbi or something. I'm not trying to to stir that up. I'm just saying, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, we don't have 
disciples of Yeshua going out and calling themselves rabbi. rabbi. You know, exactly. Paul, we don't have any scripture that says Paul was a rabbi. We don't have anybody calling Paul a rabbi until, you know, these messianic well, even, uh, even, Jewish groups, these in the last 20, 30 years. And, and Paul even says, you know, you have people saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of, you know, but no, I say we're of Christ. Anyway, um, so we have actually reached the end of our time. And uh, that's okay, because next week we're going to pick up right where we left off. And what we're going to talk about next week, we're going to start the whole show off. We're going to jump right into it. And we're going to talk about this idea of one law theology being supersessionist. Uh, do, do we, as uh, those who hold to what is known as one law theology, do we believe that uh, there should be no distinction between Jew and Gentile? Do we believe, uh, like these, uh, these gentlemen have accused uh, people who hold to a one law theology, do we believe that there should just be one big melting pot. We should all be thrown. All believers should be thrown into that melting pot. Everybody should just be the same. Well, we're going to talk about that first thing, and then what we're going to do is we're going to get into some of the scripture itself and see what the scripture has to say. And we're Rob and I are going to try to explain why we hold to a one law theology. If you have listened to this today, you think that we've misrepresented something, or you think that uh, there's something that we haven't brought up that we need to. Go ahead and shoot us an email, radio at TorahResource.com, radio at TorahResource.com. And, uh, you know, since this is going to be a two-parter, we actually have, you know, you, you have time to send us emails. You have a whole week to, to word your email however you want. And uh, we will try to address emails, too, at the beginning of next uh, our next show. And uh, until then, I hope that you've enjoyed our show. And... I hope that uh, you realize that what we are trying to say is that we as believers should all follow the commands of our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. <music>